Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number one of Myth vs. Craft. I'm setting out to interview interesting people who are really good at what they do. I'm thrilled that our first guest is the very talented Ian Moore. He epitomizes the type of guest that I aspire to have on each episode of this podcast. He's eloquent, introspective, generous in sharing how he approaches his craft, and a flat-out nice guy. Ian first made a name for himself in the early 90s as a guitar player out of Austin, Texas. He earned a spot on Joe Ely's band and went on to front one of the most popular bands in the post-Stevie Ray Vaughan blues rock scene. As he began to find his own voice as a musician, his songwriting evolved, and he began to cover new musical ground. He's been perfecting his craft for over 20 years, and I feel fortunate to have had a chance to pick his brain. I spoke with Ian shortly after he finished the second of two songwriters workshops that he ran in Driftwood, Texas, just outside of Austin. We kicked off our conversation with his thoughts on the workshops. How did the songwriting seminars go? Um, they were, you know, they were phenomenal. I, you know, I, I feel a little bit irresponsible saying that because it, I think people just assume that, of course, well, you know, what would you say otherwise? But um, just to be really frank, I, I, um, I, they, they quadrupled my expectations. I mean, it was way, way, way beyond. Um, and hearing, hearing people's responses, we did kind of an exit poll of everybody just to really try to get, you know, figure out it was our first year to do it, figure out what we could do moving forward. Um, the crowd was amazing. I think this first group of people, um, you know, because it isn't an established thing and uh, they were, they were maybe searching more than maybe I don't know. I don't know what created the dynamic. I think we put a lot of, not only a lot of energy into the curriculum, but I've really been um, focused on the minutia of communication and that, you know, when, when, when you t are talking to somebody, you know, <clears throat> your intention and kind of really, really what you are, you know, focusing on what you really want to communicate is really important. And we spent a lot of energy early on in the, when we first got everybody together trying to create a space, knowing that if we could do that, um, we would be infinitely more successful because it was really requiring everybody to be really open and comfortable. And, you know, you get a bunch of musicians together, there's all kinds of insecurities and right. egos and, you know, just different energies. And we had to find a consensus within a, a very quick period of time with a, a, a you know, a 15 people, a relatively large group, you know, is this uh, is this the first time you've done something like this, other than one-on-one -on -one lessons? I've done a, I've done things like this. I've done um, I did I have done a workshop before, but I, I I housed it during the afternoon, and it was through a, an arts organization, and you know, and I you know I spent some time work. It wasn't that I didn't work on it, but the level of you know really curriculum development and intention, and also just the help I had. I mean, I had a. You know, I had uh, two brilliant guitar instructors with me that were, um, you know, focused. You know, I'm a I'm a pretty um, studied musician, but you know, I really focused my energy on um, on um, you know deeper things um, than technique, really, to be honest. And I mean, that are different things. You know, just more uh, less technical, more emotional. I'm really about how to find ways to play something that matters on an emotional level. But at the same time, you know, when you're analyzing song structures, you know, to have actually a really um, thorough, you know, analysis of, 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 you know, harmonic movement, those types of things there, that's, that's really important. And some people need it more than others. Some people really need 
the technical direction because that's the way their brains and souls work. And other people are the exact opposite, you know, couldn't care less. So that was there. We had a, uh, a brilliant, uh, you know, kind of yoga Qigong instructor, um, who was also a really pretty girl. I mean, not to minimize her, it was mostly guys. And, you know, a lot of these people had never done any of this stuff. And, uh, you know, I think, I mean, it's hard to talk about any of this, anything about learning or, or communal stuff without really analyzing what's happening in the world. And mm-hmm. the thing I think that we re- all realized is that every single person is stressed out, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody, and we're overwhelmed and we're just all um, so stuck in this mindset because we're living in it right now and we're just you know, adjusting to the speed of communication with the internet and the amount of responsibility that we have. And, and you get these people together and they meditate for a little while and you know, have a really great meal and sit around with a group of people they haven't known and have this community. And all of a sudden you start to find your true nature as a human being. So it's, it's way deeper than songwriting. You know, I think it's really, we just got a, a cool little peek on what's kind of really necessary for all of us to be doing. And it just happened to come through the, the onus of a songwriting camp. That's uh, that's fantastic, and it seems like the and I'm sure it was by design, but the the venue, the structure, just the overall context, and the way you you, you structured this and put this together were all key ingredients, perhaps to to make it come together like it did. Well, a lot of the credit goes to Jody. I mean, honestly, like you know, she's be, well, she's become a really good friend of mine, and I, I feel like our friendship has developed because we share a lot of the same value systems, and many of which I just said, you know. Slowing down the communion of the table, you know, how important uh, meals are these days and really any ritual at all. And so, yeah, she really helped to design the space, both physical and, um, you know, emotional. So people could could do that. And, you know, um, the way, the language I'm using is, is it's not new to me, but um, I've always been really reticent to go into areas that sound too metaphysical because I'm a pretty, you know, you know, meat and potatoes person. You know, I'm, I'm not. I don't like to get <clears throat> too into it, but I'm just realizing, you know, there's a, an inequity happening right now. And so all the stuff that, that like Jody is thinking about was really helpful. You know, if it had just been me, I would have had a bunch of people sitting in a room, you know, <laughs> with guitars <laughs> and, and that, that would have been great. And that's kind of what most songwriting uh, camps that I'm, I, that we studied are, you know, you just sit around kind of in a big song circle and uh, play and talk about songwriting, you know. Understood. Understood. Um, I just just to give you some some backdrop or context. I've uh, I've been familiar with with your music for a while. I've lived in Austin since '95. Uh, I, I moved here to go to school, and uh, and I actually I saw you perform. What was this? Um, I think it was at the uh, the Cactus at uh, at the Union uh-huh. uh, when you were doing yep. putting on an acoustic show, and uh, and have been familiar with your music uh, and uh, and familiar with you for a while. And I kind of rediscovered. Um, or I guess the, the impetus for, for this was that I read a handful of articles that you wrote for Premier Guitar. Um, I want to say yep. it was about around 2011, and, and they yep. really intrigued me, and, and I really enjoyed them. And, uh, and that's what made me think that uh, it, would, it would be really, I would find it fascinating to, to pick your brain and, and, and learn more about, about your process. And, uh, yep. and to do so, I wanted to maybe get a little bit of, 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 of background in terms of um, just your, your motivation. Uh, do you recall at what age you first started thinking about, about making music your, your career? Um, well, I would take, I'd take a few steps back and say that, you know, a lot of times, you know, there, well, first of all, I started playing the violin when I was really young and, um, 
I think I, I, you know, both of my parents have passed. So unfortunately, I'm not able to continue to talk to them about that, you know. But, um, you know, I think a lot of, uh, I was really, really into music from a young age. And even though neither one of my parents were, were necessarily um, musicians by trade, they were both very, very music was part of our life, you know, and it was a really important, you know, thing for both of them. And so I think I, I, I was, that was brought into my psyche at a young age. And then I started playing the violin and we had an amazing program in Austin called the string project, which um, worked in tandem with the university of Texas, uh, um, classical music program. So we had access to these just brilliant young minds um, teaching us. And it was a very accelerated program. So I learned, I learned uh, quite a bit about, about music and got really into it to the point that I was going to be probably a, you know, I was on, I was on the track to be a symphony player for sure. I was a very wow. competitive violinist, you know, typically first chair. And I was thinking that that was really what I was going to do. And I mean, that was at like 10, 11, you know, really young. And, um, I had a, f a freak accident when I was 14 and all of my tendons in my left hand were cut and I wasn't able to, uh, they had to be reattached surgically. Um, and I wasn't able to play at all for basically about a year. And so when I came out of that, I, uh, picked up the guitar, which was something I'd always wanted to play anyhow. And, um, I started playing then. So I, you know, things happened really quick from then on. And to be honest, there was never, there was never really a moment where I, um, actually, decided I, I wanted to be a, a professional musician. I think it decided for me. Um, and I guess that moment would have been when I was going to the University of Texas and I, uh, you know, was planned to, and I was completely immersed in, in, you know, going that route and really digging it. And my, uh, had a tour offered to me for my band, a national tour. I went to talk to my counselor, you know, thinking she was probably going to tell me not to do it. And she gave me, she was like, you have to do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I went out on tour and I told her I would come back when I was done. <laughs> you know, and that was uh, 27 years ago. Did you find that, um, uh, was that a tough decision to make or, or was it a slam dunk once, once you got that confirmation or, or encouragement from your counselor? You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, my dad brought me up kind of in the school of, you know, Robert Camp, uh, Joseph Campbell rather. Um, and he was kind of of that way of thinking that, you know, decisions are typically, I mean, not that all decisions are easy. You know, I've, I've had some hard ones lately, but it was pretty, it was pretty easy. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, maybe I should think more about the future. I have a certain way of thinking, you know, and I'm probably different from some other people that are more planners than I am, but I really believe in the, uh, in the, um, you know, guiding yourself by your intuition. And, you know, I mean, if you have an opportunity to tour, you know, and you're a young man, um, something that probably will not come around again. And I would probably, you know, whether it be my own children or I was mentoring somebody. And I just think that, you know, when you take an opportunity like that and you really, really want it, it's something that's interesting to you. You should probably follow it most of the time. I, uh, I believe you were, uh, your major was musicology at UT Austin. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I was in the, I was in school for such a short period of time. I, I mean, I was actually pre-law going in because I was really into debate and I, and I, as, as you can probably tell from talking to me, I'm pretty idealistic. So I had this perception that 
that law was quite a bit different than it actually is. And um, so that I drifted away from that quickly and just found myself, you know, kind of drifting really towards music um, performance. And, you know, musicology was kind of the direction that I was sitting about the time when I went on tour. But I mean, I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to try to actually apply for a music program. I was flirting with the idea of trying to be the next Peter Goralnik. Um, you know, I really, really loved, you know, I'd, I'd grown up. I mean, I was a record collector as a kid. I had really deep knowledge of, you know, American soul and blues music and folk music, you know, and, um, and I loved reading about it. And so, you know, and I, I kind of had this moment where I, you know, thought that I would, you know, write about all these people I'd grown up with. And I think that was, you know, my last gasp of um, being part of the university world. So I guess I was, you could say I was a musicology major. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned a few moments ago that you um, uh, you don't tend to think much about the future or perhaps you have a special way of thinking about it uh when you were when you decided to go on tour did you have a clear sense of 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 where that would lead you or the type of career you wanted or you just it was an opportunity in front of you it was appealing you took it and you just went with it well i yeah like i said i mean i i feel like i mean it's been a long time ago so it's hard to reflect exactly the way i was thinking but i don't really remember you know, thinking a lot about it other than like, wow, this is going to be a great adventure. And, um, you know, as I said, I mean, the Joseph Campbell, you know, the follow your bliss thing is a very, very deep statement that can come off as pithy if you don't really think it through. But I find it to be a pretty great way um, of living, you know, and if you're really passionate about something and you're excited about something and you, you know, think it through a bit with your kind of critical mind, I tend to be on the liberal side of that decision-making process. So, I didn't really probably think a ton, you know, I just don't want to come across like I'm flipping in, in my life. I'm, I'm not at all. I'm, I'm very, very trusting more in the process of uh, resonance and what's put in front of you. In other words, that the decisions are often much more imbued with purpose when you just follow mm-hmm. what's, what's the right path. You know, right now I live on an island. I'm really, really interested in the tides because the tides are so powerful. And, um, you know, I just think about times in my life when I've been work, I've worked so hard, for instance, to, you know, get a, a, a sound across or try to get my career to, to break on another level. And I mean, I put everything I have into it and I try so hard and I contact everybody and I, I work my ass off and nothing happens. And then I have other times where you know, I, I barely do anything and everything just opens up and things mm-hmm. are so easy. And, you know, I've really come, you know, and I, I've kind of always thought that, but even as I've gotten older now, I, I, I'm really seeing it. It's true. And, you know, it really is like the tides, you know, when the tide's high, you know, the ships sail easily. When the tide's low, it's, it's a bitch to launch, you know, it's mm-hmm. just really, everything's harder. And um, so, yeah, I just kind of have, have, I've always done that, I guess. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, going, uh, moving over to songwriting for a moment. Do you, when you started playing guitar, um, did you did you start writing songs right away, or or did you follow more? Uh, did you uh, learn covers? Did you learn songs? Did you learn other people's music and eventually grow into writing your own songs? Um, we, yeah. I mean, it definitely took. Uh, well, I started out as an instrumental. And this was one of the interesting dynamics about about this workshop is a lot of the people that came because I have a I do have a lot of 
a lot of what has gotten me recognition is is you know guitar playing, mm-hmm. and I'm not as known as a songwriter, even though I, that tends to be more my focus, I think. Um, so I started out the same way. I was definitely really just in the guitar and just the, and, and a, you know, I still am. I mean, I, I just love the, I love the fact that there's this thing and it's not, I mean, a violin is an amazing thing and all the instruments are amazing, but a guitar and especially the modern version of it, it's a pretty new thing and it's kind of open-ended. And so for, for quite a while, I was just obsessed with just making it make sound, you know, mm-hmm. you know, vibrating it, you know, different vibratos. And I studied a lot of, you know, blues players and I would sit there for, days and days just trying to get the wiggle of an Otis Rush vibrato. So very, very, you know, micro studying, not like this big scale, like major and minor scales, just little teeny weird things that probably nobody would notice. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it was when I started playing with Joe Ely that, you know, I was really lucky there again, you know, you could say, you'd say fate or whatever, but I, you know, played with Joe and, you know, going with Joe and just kind of being open to that experience. All of a sudden I'm around, you know, pretty much the best songwriters in the world are definitely some of them. And, um, you know, when you're hanging out with, with Jimmy Dale and Butch Hancock and Lucinda Williams and Steve Earle and Robert Earl Keane and Towns and Guy Clark, you're going to find an appreciation for the song. <laughs> you know, there's no getting around it. So, uh, I've been telling a story lately um, before I play Blue Sky because I consider that to be the first time that I crossed that line of kind of what I was doing live and actually was able to put an emotional context in the song. And um, I think Blue Sky was the first song that I ever played in front of those people. Like I was actually proud of that song. I felt like I, I had something I could justify in my voice <clears throat> to play because a lot of the other stuff I'd written before that, I just copied people and it would just be me putting on a costume, you know, and acting a certain way, which, you know, just felt kind of inauthentic. And I, I, I'm, you know, when you're playing in front of that level of songwriters, they see right through it. And mm-hmm. they, you know, they're so really, really was um, not probably for, you know, a few years that I really started to really concentrate on songwriting and um, it definitely, my love of songwriting cast my career on a very different path and opened up a lot of new doors, also created a lot of challenges um, for me as well, you know. Did you, um, did you, when did you start singing? Well, I always, I've always sang. I mean, I just, again, it just took, you know, singing is, um, I love the voice and I love recording singers. I feel like it's an area that recording where I feel real confident because it's so psychological. Mm-hmm. It's also very technical to be able to express different emotions, you know, physiologically and emotionally and connecting those two. So I've been singing for a long time and um, I just was not considered a very good singer, you know, when I was young because I didn't really know how to do it. And I think I would just I would kind of try too hard. And when you push your vocal cords too hard, they kind of shut down. So you have to, singing's kind of like, um, it's like you have to find this ease in this very physiologically mellow space to allow this intense force to come out. And if you really, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I don't know if you're a singer or you like to sing, but sometimes people sing and they just clench their throat up and then the note gets stuck. And mm-hmm. it's like, you can't, can't get up to it. So that, that's one very, kind of uh you know obvious way that that manifests but you know it just takes training your body and your 
mind, you know, and, and uh, I think everybody can be a great singer. You know, I, I really believe that. And I think that people, you know, you just have to find your voice. And so for me, it took, took some time, you know, I was such a big a fan of great singers. You know, I grew up, you know, with some of the, you know, again, trying to emulate Aaron Neville and Marvin Gaye and Al Green and Bobby Blue Bland and all these singers that are just Stevie Wonder, Sam Cooke, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm still not where I want to be, but I'm definitely a much better singer than I was. And I think, you know, now people think I'm a good singer, you know, and definitely didn't when I was young. Got it. Um, your, after your first two records with, with Capricorn, um, is, is that about, about around the time that you moved to Washington State? No, it was a few years later. Um, and, and the yeah. reason I ask is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to piece together the, the steps you took to, to, to switch direction, to evolve, to expand your songwriting palette. And, and, and just from reading bios, it seemed like perhaps the move to Washington State um, might have or might not have been related to that. But what specific steps did you take, if any, to, to do that with your songwriting after those first two records? Well, I, I, I was doing, I was changing before the first record. I was okay. changing between the first and second. I mean, significant changes. I would say the biggest change I probably ever had in my career, like an ever a quantifiable change was between my first and second records. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm raised, I was raised by a Buddhist professor, you know, and I was raised to, I was also raised in a culture in Austin that valued um, cultural evolution and change and really, really surrounded by people that were very aggressive intellectually. And so for me, the very nature of making art was to evolve and change. Mm-hmm. And so I've kind of done that my whole career. And then I, you know, obviously having a public career, you know, I know what it was like for me, but then I understand that looking from the outside, mm-hmm. everybody sees these, these big shifts and things that, that aren't really out necessarily the way it happened. I mean, I kept, you know what it was for me is I, I'm always looking for like a liberation. I'm always looking for the space to just be myself and to, to kind of explore that path. And like I said, I'm really idealistic and I, I just, I'm always convinced that if I, if I'm just really honest with myself and I work hard, that people are going to love it. And it, that doesn't always work actually. Um, cause everybody has their own trip, you know, and they receive stuff that I put out and so I think I kept trying, you know, to kind of like get deeper in my own communication, go on my own path, and at the same time find ways to communicate with people that were, were, were going to work. When I was really, really young, when I made my second record, I was really naive about how people took stuff in. And, you know, as I've grown older, I've learned that, you know, just because your intention is pure and you have a really, really... um you know, good headspace doesn't mean that's going to translate to the people listening to it on the, on the, you know, back end. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, the move was partially that. I mean, the other thing that I always say is that, you know, my life is not defined by my career. I mean, I'm a very, I've got two children and a wife now and, um, and beyond, even beyond that. I mean, it's like, you know, I have a love of the wilderness and the mountains and the ocean. And, you know, there was part of wanting the move was partially for that feeling. Um, although I feel like that even imbues my career, you know, I just wanted to be, I think the biggest thing in relation to what we're talking about that I could communicate about that move is that I felt that I was a made man in Austin Mm -hmm. and I felt like, um, I needed to challenge myself 
and see who I could be outside of um, the love of of Austin. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I moved up here and I stripped away, you know, because my band was one of the main faces of Austin, Texas, for years. I mean, everywhere we went, you know, we were the big young up and coming band and. We'd fly into the airport and we knew everybody at the airport and there was so much energy there and just people would move to Austin that we met on the road. And I just, I just felt like everything about me was defined by Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And as you know, it's such a powerful entity, you know, it has such a, you know, you ask anybody that knows anything about, you know, America and pop culture or anything. And you say Austin, they're going to say something about it, you know? Definitely. Um, when you um, mention these other interests that you have and, and that um, your life understandably isn't defined by your career, if 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 music were no longer a viable option, and then you, you can answer this question either thinking of, of moving forward or, or going back 10, 20 years, if music had not been a viable option, is there anything, um, what other occupations do you think you might have been interested in exploring? Oh, man, I would, I mean, there's a, you know, I kind of explore them anyhow. I mean, Oh boy. Uh, well, one, one thing that is kind of funny whenever I say it, I think it kind of gives people a kick is city planning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really, really interested in sociology. I think, you know, my father being an ethnographer and my mom being a social worker, I'm, I'm obsessed with cultural trends. And I think one of the, you know, my dad an ethnographer is, uh, is basically, basically it's, it, you study the cultural manifestation of sociological changes. So they, so, the things that people make because of the lifestyles they live. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, kind of what I kind of study, I guess, you know, about music. Like I'm really into music and I'm really into food. And, um, you know, I'd like to be able to be involved and I'm kind of trying to do that anyhow, um, anecdotally in my life in the, in the flow of cities. Like I really feel, for instance, you know, I, I in Austin all the time and, you know, and I love Austin. It's a, it's, it's really my home, even though I've lived here for a long time. You know, and you can really see um, some seriously poor decision making. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying I could do it any better, and I'm not trying to. I'm just saying it from a philo- if we're having a philosophical discussion about city planning, I would say that Austin's in a very dangerous space right now. I would say that there was an enormous investment, kind of in the um, cultural infrastructure of Austin, that that allowed this huge business real estate boom to happen, and people have been cashing in for a long time. But what's happening is in tandem with all these other cities like Seattle and San Francisco, they're not continuing to enrich the core that they built up to get this, this cash in. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal because, um, you know, the city's health is really dependent upon continuing to nourish that because the moment that you lose that thing and the property values, you know, the bottom line goes down, you've got a big, a big new group of people living in the town that are not tied into it the way, the culture was before the boom. So I'm fascinated with that. Um, you know, I love food. Uh, a lot of my friends are very involved in, uh, um, you know, similar things to music, but with food, you know, I have a friend that does these amazing dinners, dinner over de- death, over dinner, drugs over dinner, where he flies all, all over the world and, and sits down around the table and deals with controversial, emotional, emotional issues with the idea that, the communion of the table brings out a deeper and more, um, a less, um, aggravated response and that you can actually work through big problems. So I'd like to do something like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if you saw um, Dave Grohl's, um, sound city 
um, a series of, of uh, I guess, a miniseries on, on HBO, but there was an episode dedicated to, uh, to Austin, and yep. he, he pretty much echoed the, uh, at the end of the show, uh, your assessment of where Austin was, what enabled it to become what it became, and where it is now, and, and, and pretty much echoed his, his assessment being that it's in, in a dangerous place right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't, you know, it's funny. Dave Grohl is like one of those guys, like, um, he's like the Johnny Depp of music. It's like, he, I, he's so nice. And obviously, I mean, I'm not, I don't know him personally, but I, I know Taylor's drummer real well. And you know, I've heard nothing but great things. I honestly, when he did that show, I was so jealous of him because I was like, I should have done that show. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean it in a bitter way, but more like, I was just like, man, God, you know, that's cause that's totally like, you know, for years and years and years, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the only musician, but that's something I've really cataloged was really the, you know, and that's how I look at touring and music and stuff was the the thread of these, these common cities and the heartbeat of, of um, what's going on in each city. And I really felt keyed into that, you know, but I mean, you know, David, he's the right guy to do it. And I think um, he's a smart guy, you know. Yeah, definitely. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I wanted to ask you how do you how do you currently split your time between uh, songwriting, recording, and performing? Um, well, it's kind of like having three kids, <laughs> and they're all precocious, and um, they're all constantly being let down by your <laughs> lack of attention to them. So, for instance, before you called, I've just kind of gone back from the songwriting camp and realized I need to practice my guitar. This is getting ridiculous, you know, and. When I do that, you know, obviously I'm not writing as often. Um, I, they, they just come in waves, you know, and it's a constant um, reassessment of need, you know. Um, you know, you can't be all of those things all of the time. You know, something gives, and there's a reason that there's nobody that kind of does that all. Like, some, you know, there's always this strength. I mean, no matter how good people are. Mm-hmm. You know, there'll be this dude like, you know, you look at Prince and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, he doesn't really write songs or vehicles for his. I mean, I'm not trying to say, I mean, he's a brilliant songwriter. I'm not trying to say, but you, if you if you put that in line with his musical ability and you know what I mean, there's mm-hmm. always a trade off. And then you'll get like a Ryan Adams, who's pretty good with lyrical imagery. And, you know, you can tell that's where he really focuses his energy. And then you throw in recording and it's like... <laughs> And then, you know, the other thing, you know, my, one of my many rants lately has been like, you know, not only do we have to now do all of these things and largely record ourselves because, you know, your profit margins are so low in the back. And, you know, when you release a record now, it, it, you know, you really have to do a lot of the work yourself. But we're also now becoming uh, self-marketers, like pretty mm-hmm. intensive self-marketers. So that's uh, that's the other job that's I probably spend more time, honestly, and not to sound pitiful, but um, I would bet. I spend more time right now on social media than I do uh, working on music. And it's not because I like social media. <laughs> do you, uh, if we focus on those three uh, legs to the stool, um, um, at least the three that you, that you presumably enjoy writing, recording, and performing, um, could you do away with, with, with one of them? Uh, meaning, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of, of John Frusciante, the uh, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, former guitar, pl- guitar player. I'm, I'm fascinated by him in, in a number of ways, and I've read a number of interviews, and lately uh, he, 
actually since he left the band for the second time, he's very um, strongly expressed that he has no interest whatsoever in ever performing live again, and that he pretty much never enjoyed it, and he's much yeah. happier focusing on writing and, and yeah. to a certain extent recording, and that he, he felt like he was being inauthentic when he performed, and it was the same songs, and he was uh, that it, it was just fake, and he never enjoyed it, he couldn't connect with audiences, and, and to me, uh, it, it was surprising um, in that I, I always felt like, like at least in my limited experience, that, that performing was, was and it's perhaps because it was limited experience, was, uh, was a rush. Well, I don't agree with, with John Frusciante, but I'm, I'm not him. You know, I think that, you know, um, being a fan of his as well, I haven't followed his, his career as much lately, but I'm definitely, I'm a fan. I know how, um, I, I respect his, his desire to, to follow his personal integrity. You know, I just don't disagree. I mean, I don't agree that I think that, um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, performance for me, at least, is uh, communion. And on, on the best nights, it's the, the greatest thing of all. And, um, you know, recording, it's a thing. You know, recording is, is you alone or you with a group of musicians, and it is a thing. It's great. It's amazing, but it's different from a live performance. And, uh, you know, for instance, you know, I was a big Neville Brothers fan growing up, and the rub on them for years was that, you know, they were the most amazing live band, but they couldn't make a record because... Mm -hmm. If you can't capture that visceral energy of the brothers, you know, these three guy brothers and their friends all playing together. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I love the studio. I'm really, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I feel like that's been probably the biggest renaissance in my career. If you follow. And I think where I've lost some people is that a lot of, a lot of my fans really relate to me on an emotional, especially early fans, they on an emotional, um, kind of raw level. And, you know, I've really, uh, <clears throat> gotten into the, to recording, you know, and really the, I'm really proud of like the last couple of records or last three records where I've kind of, <clears throat> um, largely self-produced of the, the sonic cloth of the records and what I've, what I've done there. And I've really, I like them. I actually listened when those songs come on, I actually enjoy them, which is weird to enjoy your own music, you know? it's just a funny dynamic. I just want to clarify. It's like, you know, my early recordings, even though I liked a lot of things, I liked the songs and I liked that. They always felt, it felt really weird to me for some reason. And I wasn't really like people would put my recordings on and I'd be really uncomfortable. And I just didn't enjoy, I felt real stressed out when they were on. And now when my records come on for the most part, <clears throat> the more recent ones, I think because I've learned how to use the studio to communicate what I want to communicate in the studio, like the way I want my vocals to sound, the way I want the instrumentation to sound, the, the feel of the, the, the musical, you know, accompaniment. I just, I have a thing now, so I'm much more happy when I hear it back. And that could be a, a whole separate conversation onto itself. And that I'm, I'm also fascinated by, by, by the craft of, of recording. And, and sometimes what I've asked myself is, um, for example, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Amy Lou Harris's uh, Wrecking Ball album. And, Very uh, familiar, actually. And I read a, um, a book um, from by the producer. Well, let me just, Tim, before you get too far into this, um, I was there with Daniel Lenoir when he was planning that record out, actually. I was making Modern Day Folklore <clears throat> with Mark Howard, who's Daniel's head engineer. We were working at Daniel's studio 
And Daniel was there the whole time for like, we were there for weeks, weeks together. And there were uh, during our pre-production, especially uh, there were many, many nights when I would sit around and Mark and Daniel and I, and maybe another guy in the band would sit around, uh, talk music. And he was collecting the songs for wrecking ball. And <clears throat> we would listen to, uh, I mean, I remember listening to, uh, um, uh, Orphan Girl, I think with him when the first time he listened to that, you know, when he was trying to figure out if he, if that was going to be one of the tunes and, um, and, you know, he had all these different Martins, these different guitars, and he was trying to figure out the, you know, the, what, what accompaniment he was going to do and the, the players. And so, yeah, I was actually really close to that record. I even, uh, I even, I even sang a background vocal that didn't make it on the record, but it was down in New Orleans recording the horns for, uh, for modern day um, at Kingsway, which is their, their, you know, and that's where they were recording it. And since I was there, um, and we were recording around their schedule. Um, I was uh, sang a background vocal. Wow, I, uh, yeah. I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall um, listening to those conversations because, based on reading Daniel's book, it seems like uh, I, I would venture to guess that the two of you uh, see eye to eye in many ways, and if and if not, at least can have very uh, um, spirited conversations discussing your perspectives. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know if we actually we really didn't see eye to eye. We disagreed about almost everything. <laughs> But I really like Daniel a lot, and I'm a big fan of his music. No, he's a he's a really interesting guy, you know. And <clears throat> and the other thing that was that was you know is, I think that <clears throat> when I met Daniel, and I don't mean to speak for him, and I actually have no idea, but this is just my, I think he, I don't think he really respected where I was coming from. I think you know he was obviously quite a bit older, and he worked with all these really heavy musicians, and you know, it was a little bit of a crossing time. Like I kind of got his trip. I don't think he got mine mm -hmm. <clears throat> at that point. And, you know, he was really anti-guitar player oh. at that point. You know, he was really, there was this real negativity towards kind of the, you know, that, you know, we were all, me and Charlie and Doyle all coming up in the wake of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was just very uncool in that circle. And I remember that and remember, you know, and I was kind of going through a thing of like feeling like, you know, I didn't want to be lumped in this. And so we had some, some insecurity and negativity around that too. And so when I met Daniel, you know, there was a, it was, it was amazing. And I learned a ton and we did have definitely have some spirited conversations and, um, you know, um, Daniel's just a really interesting guy. I mean, the, the, probably the, the thing I remember is I remember we were listening to uh, records one night and I put on Sly Stone's Fresh, which is, one of my favorite records of all time. And I, I just, I consider it to be like just a masterpiece of funk. Like it's truly one of the greatest funk records. I think it is the funkiest thing ever recorded. And I think I said as much, <clears throat> Daniel looks at me with this very raised eyebrows and seemingly very condescending goes, Oh, the funkiest, right? Really? You know? And I was like, <laughs> kind of saying like, like, as if you can say that, you know, and I was just speaking, you know, kind of as a young man, you know, with the real excitement of, you know, making an emphatic statement. But but that was the kind of thing. So it was really cool. And and but we're very different. You know, that's the beauty of, of the whole trip is that, you know, you hit people at different points and uh, you know, sometimes you really, really connect. And sometimes the very nature of your I think Daniel and I probably have a lot in common. And that's probably why we didn't connect well, mm -hmm. you know. The, the reason I bring up uh, Wrecking Ball is that in, in reading his, his book, I, I just really got a, a glimpse into what it was like to make that record. And for that matter, all of the records he's made. And, and, the, and I asked myself, 
uh, clearly he appreciates uh, the 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 in many cases subtle differences uh, in, in the results that are that are yielded by by the attention to detail and constant experimentation and and, and all all the heart soul blood and tears that he put into into making that record and, and the records he makes and I'm sure uh, I can imagine that the the performers and Emmy Lou herself appreciated it very much. Um, my, the question I, I ask myself sometimes is: Do you think the general audience? appreciates it to the same level or anywhere near the same level or what or are they really reacting to the performance that was enabled by 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 the things that Emmylou and the band and the performers uh, could appreciate themselves well we're we're dancing very near a gaping maw culturally with what you're talking about you know um and i i get to areas where it's difficult for me kind of to talk about it because I don't want to come across as being cynical um, or, and I don't want it to be misread as like, you know, throwing, I really believe um, that it really depends on where you're at with your life. I think anybody can hear that, but I think you have to be um, I'm trying to think of how to say this in a way that's like, uh doesn't, I don't sound like an asshole and a dumbass basically. Um, I think anybody can hear it. I think it requires, not filling your life up with completely empty crap, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that 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 is part of it. I really do. And I think that there is a real disparity in how people take in content. Some people take in content with a searching soul and um, they're looking for a deeper truth, you know, and they're, 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 their hearts and their souls are open. And so when you are like that and you hear a record like that, I think it's hard to not kind of be hit on like a Jungian level, like you're, you just feel the beauty and, and the detail and all of those things kind of are this just poignant, really deep art thing that connects you to kind of a deeper space. You know, I think a lot of people use pop culture, music and TV to basically validate personal ignorance. And so it really depends on where you're coming from um, with what you want to put inside of you. Yeah, I don't know how to say it. I just sound like an asshole, but no, no, um, no. That, that's uh, that was but, very But clear. that's really what I think. That's what I think. So I, I'll I'll live or die with that statement. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I think that really, honestly, if you're open to it, and not that everyone's going to like that record. I mean, the other side of music is that we all need different things. Some people really, really love uh, Brian Eno. You know, obviously Daniel's partner on a lot of stuff because of his the wallpaper nature of his music, and some people really you know, uh, have souls that have a difficulty with the darkness of even a, you know, wrecking ball, maybe it's too dark for them. You know, there's, there's what, you know, there's <clears throat> so many, you know, music is so beautiful on that level, but I do feel like if you are of the type that could take this in and you are quiet enough, it becomes, uh, that statement is, a, I, I don't, I feel like it is received by anybody the same way. Uh, you know, that's when they can hear it and can, can open up to it. So um, that's a great answer. And in and, and recording your own music and, and, and thinking and feeling the way you do, do you find, do you find difficulty drawing a line beyond which uh, there are diminishing returns in terms of, um, let me think of a silly example, uh, trying out 14 different microphones for, for a singer? To capture just the right timbre and, and, and vibe and, and just really match that singer's voice. Do you find that do you ever struggle to find a point at which something is good enough? I'm kind of the opposite of that actually. I, I can find beauty in 
pretty much almost any recording technique. The only time I don't like it is if it's too sterile. Mm-hmm. The only time I get lost is like, if the thing's got a vibe, and I think this, you know, Daniel would probably say the same thing. I mean, he's, it's more that when you're, you know, I, I think if you're referring to something he's talking about, because he, you know, it's when you're, you're close to something, but you're not quite there. Um, and I've done that some, I, I work really fast. I know my gear that I have. I, um, one of the things that Brian Eno um, was is famous for, and as a matter of fact, one of the things we used in our songwriting workshop is is his uh, strategies, the oblique strategies. And one of the main strategies, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's a, a series of statements that are meant to uh, to free up you from your literal constrained minds in case you're stuck. People use them in studios a lot. But one of the things is, you know, simplify. You know, uh, take take things away. So if you've got 18 microphones that you're going to try in a singer, you have too many microphones. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can quantitate. Well, first of all, I have a friend, Eric Valentine, that did a uh, AES speech. I did a keynote, the American Engineer Society, a couple of years back, and he was right after me. And his thing was that our aural memory our, our, that from our ears, the memory of our ears is very, very short. And that is actually um, something that people might say that's different, but he proved it. This is a scientific study that was, that was proven. So your memory of being able to actually memorize beyond rough, rough areas of sound and so forth is very, very um, poor. So if you're listening to 18 microphones in a row, by the time you get to about four, you've lost what one sounds like, and you're really just running around in circles at that point. Um, definitely. And I actually had a, a section of, of my questions that I didn't think we would get to, and we probably won't, have to do with, with precisely that, and, and really more so dealing with, with uh, um, the objectivity or perceived objectivity of comparing equipment, sounds, and how uh, I've read a little to uh, and, and, and learn more about not only do we have a short uh, memory and are we unable to really remember what something even that we played a few seconds ago actually sounds like uh, but how it's so deeply affected by our preconceived notions if uh, uh-huh. if, uh, if, if, if you know one is a very expensive condenser you know a telefunken uh, mic you expect it to sound a certain way and your brain will actually trick you into hearing things that that perhaps aren't really there and not just that but in terms of acoustics too and especially if it's not in a really well-treated space how moving uh, even your head, you know, a few inches or a few feet in a different direction or moving a cabinet, you know, a few inches closer to the wall or away from the wall, that there's basically so many variables at play that it's very, very difficult to actually make uh, truly objective yeah. comparisons. Well, so to, to break this down, um, we have way too many choices. And I was saying that kind of before with the kind of talking about information, we have too much information, we have too many choices for at every single step of the way. And they're paralyzing. So what we all end up doing is wasting most of our time with choices. And so, um, you know, if you study great recordings um, and, you know, these people now, if you're into recording, you know, you'll get on the forums and they'll be like, what microphone for this thing? What preamp? And it's like, look, talk to George Martin and and his engineers when they were recording the Beatles. They really only had a few options. And so part of the, the beauty of the recordings is that they weren't spending their time, you know, obsessing about the tools, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were getting a tool that they knew worked and they were moving forward with it. And then maybe upon reflection, they would change it the next time, but you just can't, you know, you just can't get so strung out on the process or you never get to the end. I mean, you know, the end is really getting a performance down on tape. And I mean, again, Daniel's famous, what he was famous for was always rolling tape, mm-hmm. regardless of whether the sounds were right. And saying that, 
you know, the engineer sitting here, you know, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've done this where I'm going in to do a vocal take, which should be very emotional and fresh and present. And then I spend 45 minutes to an hour in this weird, very sterile vocal booth while the engineer tries mm. out preamp after preamp. And then by the time I start singing, I'm like completely esoterically out of my head uh -huh. and I'm not there. And so they capture these kind of mediocre sounds very well. <laughs> you know. That's a great way to put it. Um, the What you just mentioned about having too many options reminds me of a, uh, of a book that you may, you may be familiar with. It's called The Paradox of Choice. Uh, and yep. basically talks about why more is less and how j having just the right number of, of options is great, but having any more than that is, like you said, paralyzing. Well, I think, you know, I mean, you can really look, you know, I've been really getting into, um, I'm one of the many things that I love to talk about stuff I barely know about. So I constantly sound like a borderline asshole and you have to forgive <laughs> that. But I will excuse my that in saying that I'm ambitious and trying to understand things that I don't understand. Um, my, I call her my aunt, they broke my uncle and she had broken up, but my aunt Sandy is a neuroscience writer as my cousin is a neuroscientist as well. And she writes a lot about the evolution of the human brain to understand new tools. So I've been, ex I've been talking about this a lot. And I talked about it a lot again at my workshop because I was trying to, you know, communicate why it's important to simplify and why it's important to get quiet. And all those things to me are based on the fact that our brain simply is not organized to take in this level of information and choices. We just don't have the ability and just on a, on a basic neuroscience level, you know, the technology, there's, there's a theory that has a name, which of course I don't know. And it is that technology increases at an exponential level and um, brain development and uh, the evolution of the brain and continued um, tweaking of the way we, um, use the brain, and, and especially in relation to our use of tools, um, occurs at a, there's an actual ratio, and I forget what it is, but it's under two to one because there's the deviation of, of every genetic change after birth, right? So we're just plodding along very slow, and technology is going along very, very fast. And really what technology does, at least what it does right now, at least what I'm seeing is it just provides us with endless, endless, endless options. You know, and here all day today, for instance, just being on the Internet, <clears throat> I know what it does to me. It's a very overwhelming thing. You know, and when I think about like your recording, you know, the uh, it's really difficult, for instance, to not use your 8000 plugins. It's really difficult to not want it. You just there's just too many things all mm -hmm. the time, not to mention that your computer, your studio computer is also a thing that connects to the Internet. So you know, you have to check your email and you're recording and all of a sudden you're checking your email and then you look up and you've been on Facebook or whatever you're on or looking up some random news source and an hour and a half just went by and you weren't recording. Mm -hmm. I think all of those things play into the dynamic of modern recording right now. Understood and understood. Bringing it back to uh, to songwriting, uh, I wanted to um, ask you, uh, is, is there a specific instrument that you that you prefer to write on? Uh, I'm basing this question on I, reading something reading once that Jimi Hendrix found it difficult to to write with a guitar in his hands and that he he tended to uh, uh, write in his head and see colors and hear sounds and later try to translate it through the instrument as best he could. Uh, do you is there an instrument that you prefer to write on? Um, well, I typically do write on the guitar and um, I did do a whole part on that, you know, in synesthesia and you know, I always wonder about that with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he was so young and he was so romantic and he was also 
you know, especially during interviews, was often really high. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I really wonder if that's really the way. You know, I mean, that would be amazing if he really did that. You know, <clears throat> and I, I, I've had moments where I've, I've, I have felt like that, and I've had these, you know, when I, when I kind of these things that that translate. Um, I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan, of course, and um, you know, for me. Um, it's not quite that magical. I feel like I have a, a relatively magical process, but um, it's really, a, I, you know, I have a, a guitar and lately some on piano. I've been trying to, to write more on piano because it's a very, very different way to write. And sometimes just um, uh, writing without an instrument um, um, in my head, I guess, but more kind of visualizing the chords or maybe what the melody is and not worrying about the chords, you know, um, my typical process, though, is is much more kind of workmanship with the guitar in my hands and coming up with a melody and <laughs> trying to, um, you know, wrap lyrics around it. And we did a lot of work on that stuff in the workshop with different ways to uh, to get there. Has that process, like, I imagine it has changed over time. Uh, if you look back, you know, 20 years and then how you used to write songs and compare it to how you do it today, has it changed substantially? Yeah, I well, I, you know, again, I mean, I feel like uh, we are always changing all the time. And, you know, there is no way to revisit this, your, the self of you from a, a time, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And yes, I'm completely different. The things that turn me on, um, when I'm writing the, and so consequently the way I write, um, you know, like I said before, I mean, you know, when you're really young, you're, you typically are, are emulating things pretty directly because you just don't, it's hard to have your own voice. You know, I think that's real common, you know, just, um, the way our brains work, you know, we learn by copying things typically. And I feel like now when I write most of the time, I really have, even when I try to copy something, I just, I can't really do it anymore. I just kind of have, I've kind of evolved in a, my own way of doing things. So it's changed. My writing style's changed a lot with that. I don't know if anyone at, at the at your songwriting seminar uh, perhaps uh, shared this uh, frustration, but um, I think as a, to many aspiring songwriters, it, it it probably is frustrating to read an interview with with a musician they they like, and and just hear that a song came to them. And uh, I think I, I remember reading something. Uh, it might have been it might, might have been a Tom Petty interview where he just kind of uh, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he kind of referred to the songwriting process as some as something that just kind of happened and it was an at bat meaning the trying to write was it was an at bat and sometimes it happened and sometimes it didn't and when it did it was as if, as if he was just channeling something and and as as fascinating as that can be to read to someone who is trying to become a better songwriter that can that can awfully be uh, discouraging yeah well i think he's right though and i think that you know if you actually follow the process what i find and this was what a lot of people even mentioned in the song is I think people are a lot lazier than they want to admit. You know, it's really easy to just kind of go, Oh, this is hard. I give up. And you really didn't ever put in the effort. And I think, I think what happens if you think about Tom Petty, I mean, how many songs has he written? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And how many years before he started writing songs was he just, see, the thing is, is that we all go through life and we see different things. And, you know, an architect always sees the angles of trees and mountains and things you, they, you know, you know, a painter sees, you know, maybe colors and forms and shapes. A musician hears order, you know, amongst chaos. You know, we all, depending on our discipline, are taking this just multitude of, of sounds and sights and feelings and things 
and processing processing them for for what we need. So when you're a songwriter, you know you're you know, and this is I mean this is exactly what I talked about in the workshop, because what I think the way I think the way if you ever want to be to the point where songs come to you because they come to me, I have that happen not all the time but but somewhat often. Is you fill yourself with content, you know, you take and you know, you read interesting books, you watch in- interesting programs, you really treat your mind and your brain kind of like a temple, knowing that whatever information is going to sit there and either, you know, fill you up with interesting ideas or just kind of muddle you up with a bunch of random crap. And I think that that's what a lot of, well, every artist do, but, you know, definitely just focusing on songwriters is you do that and then you write a lot of songs to where you start to have these natural things that happen and you write a lot of lyrics and you get really, you know, adept with your own imagery. You know, Tom Petty definitely has his and everyone has theirs. And then the songs do come out because then once you get that, you just get out of your way and you just kind of try to stay calm and relaxed and, and don't fight it. And we did so many exercises at the workshop where, I think people were surprised, you know, one, one of them, which my wife came up with, this is a really, really great exercise. It's a descriptive exercise where you p- pass an ice cube around in a circle. Here's a funny dynamic about this. We did it two times, the beginner workshop and the advanced workshop. The beginners were better than the advanced. <laughs> and the reason they were better is because they were more, as a group, were more okay with not being good. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, they were quicker to let this stuff come out unedited and the unedited response was often really, really good. And Mm -hmm. that is just classic creativity manifesting, you know, and any, any creative writer will tell you the same. Like if you're editing and you're worried about looking dumb before you even get it out, you're just short selling yourself because your psyche is more powerful than you know. So that those statements about waking up with a song, though they are annoying, they're just kind of shorthanding a bunch of other stuff that they might've said, well, for 40 years, I paid attention to the minutiae of songs that nobody else listened to, right? <clears throat> you know? Right, definitely. And and uh, do you um, do you think there's a value, and I might have read this somewhere, in, in basically writing a lot of bad songs and being okay with just writing and exercising and thinking of it as exercising and writing one, five, ten, twenty-five bad songs because that's oftentimes the type of exercise and the type of repetition and the number of iterations required to get to something that you actually truly like? I totally believe that. And again, and I'm not trying to, to sell my workshop. I don't even have another one on the books yet, but we did that. And I, and I, I can't, this, I mean, it's so funny. Like now you're, you're just really aligning with all of my, my, my curriculum. And basically what happened was, first of all, define a bad song. I mean, you know, I, I can tell you how many times, you know, I, I, I've written a song that I thought was a bad song that ended up being a great song. And, you know, your perspective and your self-reflection, it's like you can't see yourself when you start yourself in the mirror. So how can you tell definitively when you write what is truly a bad song? So um, what I said to everybody was, don't worry you know, we had a few, uh, these were very, very detailed steps, but, but along the way, like we would, we do a thing where it's just, here's the deal. You get 20 minutes and you have to write. Don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about spelling. Just write, just let words come out. Just, just to see that you can do it. And preferably let them come out in like this torrent. Don't make them order. Don't make them, you know, don't, don't have them be neat. Just, just let them come out and just, and then take a moment to acknowledge what just came out of your brain when you thought, you know, you, when I made you do it, this wasn't even a, a thing. 
<clears throat> and then, you know, when we started writing the songs, I could just, a lot of the people that were there had this exact blockage and they were saying, you know, I can't write a song. It really frustrated. So my biggest, you know, thing was just like, well, then write a bad song. Don't worry about it. And so they'd start writing their bad song and the bad song ended up being a good song more often than not. Um, you know, and then, uh, sometimes, yeah, I guess sometimes it is, you know, I definitely have tons of songs that I'll never use, but yeah, I would definitely say that just getting them out, you know, it gets them out of the way and maybe something else comes out or the other thing that happens, I think with, um, good songwriters is they, they, they're constantly revisiting. They're very playful with the concepts of what a song might be. So they'll take a song and go, ah, look at that bridge or wow, that's kind of a cool line. I'm going to use this in another song, you know, so it's not so that's a, that's a crappy song. I'm never going to look at it again. You know, this may be revisited again in a different form, you know? I have, um, I have a, a close friend, personal friend who, who, uh, who makes a living as a professional musician and, and, and discussing songwriting with them and, and sharing some of my own personal frustration in, in terms of having many bits and pieces of songs and bridges and riffs and 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 that were just kind of lying around and I could never really compile in a way that I, I found satisfactory. He shared a, a very um, methodical and actually very organized way in which he personally handles it, which was that he tends to catalog uh, bits and pieces that he might have come up with. Uh, it might be something as quick as an iPhone recording or something on his phone uh, that then he will then catalog based on key, uh, based on tempo, uh, based uh -huh. on vibe. And then he, he builds this catalog and he has these cubby holes where he has these different bits and pieces that when needed, he can reach into and see if he finds something that works. Is that something that you've ever tried or you think might be uh, uh, helpful to some people? Yeah, you know, I think um, <clears throat> I think everybody has a different process. And, uh, you know, like there was a guy at the first weekend of songwriting, it was actually Jody's dad, but he took he actually took the course. And he's an amateur songwriter, you know, most of his tunes are kind of pretty, pretty simple, you know, just stuff that he really enjoys doing. But boy, his, uh, his, his um, <clears throat> organizational skills were <laughs> great. And I was <laughs> like, wow. So, you know, that was a, that, you know, I'm not super organized with the way I do it. I'm, I'm pretty much like, I do, you know, I keep voice memos on iPhones. And one of the things we did, we did a whole segment on, on different um, tools you can use. There are a ton of, a of uh, applications and stuff for organizing <clears throat> your songs. And, you know, there's there actually even stuff for the iPhone where you can organize lyrics and voice memos in one place. And yeah, that, that's, that's, that's all great. <clears throat> I mean, it just depends, you know, um, you know, if you're a songwriter every day, which I go through phases where I will be, I don't get to do this every single day, but I'll kind of go through phases where I'm kind of actively writing. And when I do, I try to create a space where I'm really keeping track of all that stuff so that I don't lose anything, you know? Um, and I'm sure I've lost plenty of great ideas o over the years, but you know, I just don't, I don't get strung out about it. I think that is really helpful. And again, you know, we're all different. We have different brains. You know, I had a guy in my advanced class who was just so, um, <clears throat> cerebral about everything he just the, the crew the, the very he just had to organize things and put them in boxes and that's the exact opposite of how I write but you know I totally respect that way of thinking it's just different than the way I do so he was super organized and everything had purpose and you know uh, serious reasoning you know
Right. I, I figure, um, or, or I'm, I'm guessing that someone who's, you specifically, or, or someone who's been writing songs for, for such a long time, um, perhaps sometimes the struggle you face when writing songs isn't necessary, isn't just, is this something I like or don't like, but is this something that has been done before, or am I repeating myself? And, and perhaps seeking to, to innovate or do something that you haven't done before might be a, a, a second constraint that, that you face when you write songs? Yeah, I mean, I haven't run into that. First of all, I really don't worry. And that's a, yet another thing we talked about. I said, listen, that's a, and I, and I even illustrated it by, by going to the point of <clears throat> all the way to the showing the actual lawsuit songs of people, you know, you know, I'm just, you know, every now and again, I'll have a song where somebody else will go, yeah, that's, you know, somebody will point. And even, but even then, like I have a tune I wrote called Lines of Ballard and my friend Jeff Salzman, who's my main mix engineer, I sent it to him because I love the song. It's a, it's a very Ray Davies style kind of insider look at the demise of the Seattle pop power pop culture, you know, and, and so I wrote it very purposefully, kind of uh, quoting the melodic phrase next to Tower Towers of London. Well, Jeff heard it and he was just like, I can't mix this. This is a total ripoff of XTC. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, it's a nod, you know, <laughs> and I mean, <clears throat> so to me, um, never bothers me at all. And, and I am changing so much that I kind of have the opposite problem. I am, you know, could probably stand to do more songs that are like the other tunes that I've done. I, I move really, really quickly through genre and style. And I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, you know, the way someone like Brit from Spoon very methodically and very, cons very conservatively works, you know, and you can tell it's his mindset, even though if 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 you if you were publicly to compare um, probably his career to mine, most people would be like, well, he's significantly more um, experimental, and but he's not. He's got a cool sound, but it's it's been a very watches. If you study his records, they're plotting movement from thing to thing to thing. So he moves very slowly around, and it's really interesting. It's almost like a guy who hikes through a canyon really slowly and notices all the details. And so I'm trying to learn from that way of thinking as opposed to being the guy that's just going, you know, from country to country to country, plundering and taking out the, the shiny bits, you know. If you were to look ahead at your the, ne the very next song, if you were to sit down this afternoon and decide you're, you're going to write, is there <clears> a <throat> set order in which things tend to happen? Is it uh, lyrics first? Is it uh, sit down with a guitar, come up with a chord progression, melody, uh, or maybe some some of those parts are interchangeable, but is there a general progression through which your songwriting process will go? Um, I would say in general, uh, it's me sitting down with kind of an idea um, in typically a melody and or chords kind of in tandem and then lyrics after that. But um, sometimes I'll have a melody and no chords at all, and then I work the chords around. And, and what I often try to do in that case is to, uh, you know, I, I I like simple things, but I like simple things with um, slight quirks. I like I, I don't like, you know, I, I very, very rarely will just write a straight-ahead anything just because I get too bored with it. Although I've been trying to even explore that. So I'm, you know, typically, you know, chords and melody. And when you say that you get bored with with straight ahead um, a straight ahead song, do you do you find uh, that by now it comes naturally to, to to you to avoid something that is straight ahead and you immediately take an alternate path, or do you ever find that you need to maybe set rules to to force you to do something that's not straight ahead? 
A little bit of both. I mean, I definitely, um, again, I think, you know, just altering the way you do stuff like, you know, I, for instance, I got really into, there's a band called white denim that came out a few years back a really great band out of Austin. And one of the things that I really love about them is they're so unpredictable, you know, and they do a lot of time changes, um, you know, and, uh, you know, so like, for instance, listening in for a, long, a while and then kind of going, you know, just mess with that. I've never really thought about that before. Just really changing, <clears throat> you know, thinking more almost like a prog rock guy mm-hmm. and putting in, you know, a bar of five, four, you know, just try it, you know, just so some of those things are outside rules from, from the thing. But typically, yeah, I think I naturally am, I'm always kind of looking for a little quirk and something that inspires me just so I'm staying interested in the process Understood. Ian, we have uh, gone a little over an hour and I don't want to keep you too long. I've uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our, our conversation and uh, I wanted to ask you a last, last question. Is there anything else, uh, perhaps from the song, songwriting seminar, that uh, that you feel you, you'd like to share or that you feel was really valuable to the folks who attended it? Yeah, I, I do actually. And, and thank you, Marco, for, um, for, for the interview. But um, like I said, and I probably already touched on this, but I, I can't be I can't be emphatic enough to say that to me, the biggest part of the process and the the most important thing is just learning to get quiet. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like, um, you know, it's always been that way. And really it's because when you get quiet, you notice details, you're, you're able to slow down and reflect. And so however people do that, I mean, we did some meditation and, um, and also just try to set a space to create that. But, but, you know, I just feel like with all the other stuff, I mean, and, and, you know, and then you get the side benefit of like, you got quiet and you actually, it's just really good for the, for the, the spirit, you know? Um, but I definitely think in the creative process, just getting quiet with yourself and figuring, you know, when you do that, all of a sudden, all these things that, that were all these details that we're talking about, you know, kind of fade away a little bit and you, you're able to actually create more easily. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be, you know, make it out as if it's this you know, easy thing, but I think getting quiet is, is paramount. Yeah. And, and beneficial to so much more than, than creativity and songwriting. Amen. It is indeed. <laughs> Ian, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I will be uh, following up with you soon. Great. Thank you, Marco. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this inaugural episode of Myth vs. Craft. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ian as much as I did. Until next time.